Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Arthur Snell, uh, the UK's former High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. He also served in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Yemen, and worked on the Prevent Strategy. So there is so much detail that he gives us that is incredible. Um, the insight into the diplomatic world of serving in these countries in a diplomatic role at the time that he did, in the places that he did, have given him a unique insight of Britain's role in the world for positive uh, and for negative, um, Britain's uh, imperial past. Uh, it's uh, He gave us so much, it was brilliant. Uh, and he's just such a fascinating bloke. And a kind of... it's. It's highly political, but also, of course, in many ways, not political. So it's it's a kind of great mixture of both and a, and a view of politics that is close enough, but but with distance to, to give it a different analysis. So it's it's so good. That, I mean, it, my word, you, you really want... He's the sort of person that should be doing a kind of 10-part series on Radio 4. Um, and I mean that as a compliment. I've realised that's had a silent partridge. But that is, I mean that as a real compliment, that he should be fronting stuff and educating people about what Britain does in the world, what Britain has done, and, and what the positives and negatives are, and what his experience teaches us, which in this next hour you are about to benefit from. Um, once again, thank you to everyone who's come to see me on tour. I think the political party shows are now sold out until the end of the year, uh, but you can see me uh, doing my stand-up show, Brexit through the gift shop uh, around the country. I've had a, two big dates in London, London at the Underbelly on the South Bank on the 22nd of April, Bank Holiday Monday, Happy Easter, and on the 25th of May uh, on a Saturday at London's Bloomsbury Theatre, which is very exciting. And in between, I'll be doing Aberystwyth on the uh, 10th of May. Oh, Salford Lowry on the 9th of May, Edinburgh Stand on the 12th of May, Glasgow Stand on the 13th of May, Newcastle Stand on the 14th of May, the Chorley Little Theatre on the 18th of May, and an extra day added at the Camberley Theatre on the 24th of May. You can get tickets for all those through my website, mattford.com slash live. Now, you can also vote for the political party at the British Podcast Awards. They're running a Listener's Choice Award, and all you have to do is go to www.britishpodcastawards.com slash vote, and then just type in the political party and vote for it. And get your friends too if you can as well. Thank you very much. Um, Anyway, I will stop waffling and leave you in the wonderful hands of Arthur Snell. I'm delighted to say that today on The Political Party I'm joined by Arthur Snell. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Um, I got to know you through social media, which is a, a wonderful um, tool for connecting people these days, which sounds like a Nokia pitch, but I suppose the point I'm making is that Twitter can be a, a harsh place, but actually it's still a place where you can meet interesting folk, so there's a there's a positive uh, to it. Um, and I've become aware of your career, which is a highly distinguished career in... Would you call it the diplomatic corps? I mean, what, what what's the official phrase? Well, I th- yeah, I think a diplomatic corps, uh, that makes it sound glamorous and sort of <laughs> Ferrero Rocher, which it uh, wasn't always like that. But you've had a number of roles uh, abroad um, uh, for the UK government. Um, I always loathe to do things chronologically, but you were a desk officer at the Foreign Commonwealth Office uh, uh, in the Iraq group between 1998 and 2000. So in between those two conflicts and very much in the run-up to the second. Firstly, what is the role of a desk officer at the Foreign Office? Well, at, at that level, and it tends to be a job that you give to someone who's sort of wet behind the ears, and that was definitely my my case, uh, you're really a sort of analyst. You're somebody who's trying to draw together you know, information that's available about, in that case, Iraq, 
and then build that into the sort of policy advice that you'd give to ministers? So at that time, 98 to 2000, I mean, this is around the time that Bill Clinton was was being very hawkish about Iraq, where it felt at that point we were going to uh, invade again. Um, in your view, why didn't we go in at that point? Well, I think ultimately, uh, you know, there was this this move in America. And in fact, a law was passed in America that, that sort of mandated the American government to remove Saddam Hussein. But I think no one sort of felt seriously that it would mean putting boots on the ground. And really, you know, the world was a different place. And, you know, before 9-11, if we think back to the late 90s, Iraq did grab the headlines. But actually, the things that people were really focused on were places like Kosovo and Bosnia. Yes. And it was still, the Middle East was still a bit of a backwater, actually, at that point. So what made you want to go into the Foreign Office? Well, it's a bit random, really, because I, I didn't have one of those childhoods sort of moving around the world as an expat, whereas, you know, I think quite a lot of diplomats have a international background. But it was more, I just wanted to travel. And I had failed to make sort of many plans as I finished university. <laughs> And so I sort of threw my hat in the ring for the Foreign Office and very luckily I got a place. So that was it, really. So you end up working uh, on the Iraq desk, um, for want of a better phrase. Uh, How close to the politics of it all are you in a role like that? You have to brief ministers, but are you... How much are you led by the politics of the time? Well, I think a lot depends on how high up the agenda it is. And so at that time, you know, Iraq was not the top of the agenda as it would become a few years later. So to be honest, it wasn't very political. Obviously, ministers would would need to know about it. But it wasn't something that was sort of dominating, you know, party political questions, whereas probably at that time, you know, questions of Europe, questions of Kosovo and so on, they were much more at the front of the thing. So I'd say it was more sort of technical than political. And at that point, 98 to 2000, um, the UK government view was that he had weapons of mass destruction, that he had chemical and biological weapons, was it? Or or, or do we not kind of reach that view yet? Well, it's very interesting because actually at that time there had been uh, weapons inspectors and, and the various sort of military actions that took place at that point were in relation to this earlier round of weapons inspections. Um, And I think the conclusion that had been sort of reached to that point was basically he didn't have WMD anymore. He had had them and they'd been taken care of. And now, of course, that makes it a very interesting question. How do we then conclude that he had them, uh, whatever it was, three years later, you know? So so it's a... It's a very sort of tangled issue, really. And what's your view of it um, in retrospect now, having left the, the service, if, if you could call it that, um, about the handling of Iraq in terms of... I mean, obviously, the politics are out of your hands, really. But in terms of intelligence gathering, in terms of dossiers, in terms of the use of Foreign Office staff and, and what the view of those staff would be, do you think the UK government's assessment was accurate? No, I don't. I think, I mean, obviously, subsequent events has proved very clearly how wrong we were. And and fast forwarding a bit in my own career, I then was in Iraq after the invasion with all the sort of chaos that went on. And I think, you know, it's disastrous. And a lot of the problems uh, began in the sort of run up to the war 2002 and three, where, frankly, quite weak intelligence was being sort of polished up and being put under Tony Blair's nose. And and he was being briefed that this was really sort of red hot stuff. And, you know, a lot of people have criticised Blair and I would criticise him too. But ultimately, he was given this intelligence by the head of MI6. So 
it, it would be strange if he dismissed it, you know. Um, and, you know, the 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 implications of all that are the chaos we see now in the Middle East. Was that ever anything you directly experienced in any role where intelligence is coming to you or you, or you see or hear of intelligence that you know not to be as uh, perhaps as uh, reliable as, as people are claiming it is? Well, I, I remember there, there was a, a funny case. This was um, a- after 9-11. I was actually working in Nigeria at that time. And, and there was this sort of expat bar where you used to hang out with other diplomats. And we were all getting a bit drunk. And there was all this talk about where's Bin Laden. And someone said, oh, I heard he's in Maiduguri, which is a city in the northeast of Nigeria. I mean, completely implausible. There was no way he was going to be there. And then a few days later, we saw a top secret report <laughs> claiming that Bin Laden had been seen in Maiduguri. So clearly somebody at that bar had got drunk and written it up. And so... <laughs> Yeah, it's a reasonably good example of how not all intelligence can be uh, trustworthy. I mean, this is part of the problem, isn't it? If intelligence is probably the wrong word for it because it, it suggests inherently some level of actual intelligence in terms of... It almost suggests that there is academic quality to it or that it is inherently uh, positive. Whereas I suppose so much of it just must be rumours and hearsay. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people have learnt from the Iraq experience that just because something says top secret on it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Now, you know, the question is, how do you manage that material? Because mm. obviously, you probably it doesn't make sense to ignore it. But it clearly doesn't make sense to rush it over to 10 Downing Street and build a case for war on it. No, indeed. Um, so, you, as you say, you find yourself back in Iraq in 2005, 2006 uh, as first secretary brackets political so what does what where, where what is that role in the in the in the in the organogram yeah so in the sort of hierarchy obviously you have an ambassador normally at the top of the tree there's normally a deputy and then you're about sort of three or four down but at that time the the british embassy in baghdad was huge so there were probably 10 first secretaries so uh, it, you know it, it could could sound grand um, but it was but by no means uh, particularly significant um and in terms of you know what by then, you had this full-scale insurgency had broken out. I mean, I think people now will describe it as a civil war. And uh, I was involved with projects to try to kind of build up the Iraqi uh, security and sort of, you know, home affairs equivalents um, effectively to try and help stabilize Iraq. But I wow. mean, it, it was a tough, tough uh, gig. I can imagine. Did you want to go? I did, actually. I mean... So I, when I first joined the Foreign Office, I was fascinated by the Middle, Middle East, and that was something I was very keen to get into. And actually, the thing I was really keen to do was to learn Arabic. And back in the late 90s, you know, the Middle East had become a bit of a backwater, and it wasn't seen as a priority. And I even had sort of senior people say to me, you know, if you're ambitious, don't, don't focus on the Middle East, focus on the Balkans, which from the perspective of today seems like a <laughs> yeah. really crazy piece of advice. Um, but everything changed with 9-11. And so after that, I went, I went on the sort of Arabic language training, which was an amazing thing. And to, to be paid by your employer to learn a new language is a fantastic privilege. And so at that point, it was, um, it sort of seemed the obvious thing to do. So I, I did volunteer for the, the Iraq job. Yeah. <laughs> And did friends and family say, Arthur, for God's sake, you're going into a war zone? Were they worried about you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it was it was a strange period of my life because I had I'd been in Yemen previously, which is, you know, also fairly um, troubled country. And, you know, to be clear, I, I don't come from a military family. I wasn't even in the Boy Scouts, you know, so <laughs> I, it wasn't wasn't kind of an environment no. I was familiar with at all. 
Um, but I did, you know, I suppose I did have a sort of sense of adventure. And yes, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, so it, it, it worked out okay. Uh, she, I, I don't think she was very excited by the prospect of me being in Iraq for a year. Did she visit you at all? No. I mean, we were, I was in a, an unvisitable environment and it was, um, we, there was a so-called green zone, which I'm sure you've heard about, which was a kind of secure area in Baghdad. But to do to do the job, you had to get out of the green zone. Oh, man. And, you know, it was... It, I, it was terrifying, you know, and, and there's no there's no two two bones about it. It was it was a very stressful experience, but also a very enriching experience. There's probably only so long you can do a job like that for, really, in that sort of environment. I mean, whether do you have any specific memories of security threats to yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the the most uh, vivid was actually I was in a building that was a, was attacked by a car bomb. Oh my god! Uh, and and the, the you know we were in an office and the windows blew in, um, and uh, luckily that you know the, the no in, no injury to me. I mean, people outside were, were sadly killed, but of course in the immediate aftermath, you know, you, you don't really know what's going on. And I was with an American guy who, like all Americans, was sort of tooled up. So he was frantically trying to load his gun. I have no idea what he was planning to do oh with God. it. So that was pretty scary. Um, and then, of course, it, this was an Iraqi government building. And, of course, all the Iraqis were, were trying to play it cool and sort of saying, oh, there's nothing to worry about. And I'm thinking, shit, there's a lot to worry about. Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, it makes you, I mean, I suppose part of you, given the place that you've been, and you say Yemen and uh, Iraq, Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe's very different, but um, are you drawn, do you think, to places that are perhaps a little more, um, you know, stressful? I suppose I must be. I mean, I, because I, I was, I did the Iraq thing, and then I was in Afghanistan, and I was in Helmand uh, province as well. Um and you know, I do like rock climbing, so I suppose I have a sort of—I I like risk, maybe. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm not—I'm not some kind of adrenaline junkie. It's just—I don't know. I think it's quite stimulating those sort of jobs. Uh, there must have been a lot of rewarding stuff uh, during your time in Iraq, working with, you know, setting up local infrastructure and all the rest of it. I mean, how hard was it for you, for the UK, for for the people like yourselves who are on the ground to build and maintain relationships with? with locals, whether it's the public or whether it's, you know, whatever local political uh, infrastructure there was? Yeah, I mean, it was it was very difficult. I mean, on one level, there were clearly, there, there, are, there are and there were loads of Iraqis who uh, felt that what we were doing was a necessary process, yeah. you know, and, and, and they may or may not have agreed with George W. Bush, but they had, they realised that we had to change Iraq and help from outside was going to be necessary for that to happen and i did have the advantage of of, of speaking arabic means you could you could obviously build up relationships but you know it the real problem i think was that we as a coalition weren't able to demonstrate that we had a sort of credible and coherent plan mm. and so even the people who are the most uh sympathetic to what you're doing they could see their country sort of collapsing around them i remember um, you know, a guy that we worked with uh, who was, a, you know, he was involved with the sort of uh, national security side on Iraq. You know, his son was kidnapped. Uh, oh, and, God. And the, the kidnappings became an industry. And, you know, I mean, much as you hear about in Mexico, these kind of uh, high-speed kidnappings where a massive ransom is demanded and then the person's released. And that was sort of separate to the 
the more kind of horrific ones involving Western, uh, you know, Western people, which usually ended in their mm-hmm. in their murder. But anyway, you know, living in that environment, you know, imagine your child being kidnapped. I mean, it, and and you're you're trying to work with these people and sort of convince them that you're there to help. I mean, it's, it's very challenging. Did he get his son back? He did. He did. And and it, but it was. Uh, I mean, the man he aged visibly in in ten days. You know, it was an extraordinary thing to experience. So going back after ten days was a ransom paid. How was it handled? Yeah. So what happened was, in the end, a ransom was paid. I mean, there was there was the hope possibly that you know there might have been a way to find you know to find the son and and not have to pay the ransom. But ultimately, you know, the, the risks associated with that, the so-called rescue operations, normally ended up with people being killed. You know, so it was. Uh, you know, it's it's very easy to sort of say, well, you know, you shouldn't pay ransoms. Well, what would you do? You know, it's it's impossible. Oh, yes, I would pay a ransom. Yeah. But I suppose it's about the government, and that's a different thing. Yeah. I mean, it, is there any help you can give in that situation? Well, we, we we did our best in terms of, you know, there were, there were sort of assets that the coalition had that would help sort of trace phones and things okay. like that. So, you know, you'd try and locate. But in the end, in this particular case... Uh, it was it was basically dealt with through sort of Iraqi channels. But I, I was involved also with the, the cases of the kind of the Western hostages. And obviously, they were very different. And that was that was very stressful. I remember a, a very, very kind of poignant situation where we recovered the personal effects of Margaret Hassan, who was a British citizen who'd she'd lived in Iraq for decades. She'd married an Iraqi. And she she had worked there as a basically as a charity worker. And she was murdered. And eventually, um, her handbag came back came back to the embassy, and there was something unbearably tragic about this woman's mm. handbag with just sort of normal everyday items in it. It was, it was very sort of stayed with me. They're always the things that are more arresting, I think. Even even in the passage of time, you know, it's, it's with any of these. Um, not that you would do an exhibition of this sort of thing, but you know, when we're going to the Titanic exhibition, it's always spoons and forks and yeah. combs and things that oddly have more emotion because these are the things you use every day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I can imagine that's very difficult. I mean, from afar, people obviously take different views, not just of the invasion, but of what the UK does abroad. Mm. I'm one of those people that always thinks, well, we must have diplomats trying to sort this sort of thing out. You know, whenever there's a kidnapping or whenever, you know, whether Nezanin, Zagari, Ratcliffe, whenever you get these situations, I think, well, surely we're doing all we can. We can't always talk about it. Uh, am I right to have that working assumption? Yeah, you are right. And and obviously, in most of these cases, talking about it is the worst thing you can do in terms of for, for the interests of the person who's been kidnapped. So there is, you know, there's a frustration of, of that work that you... You know, you might read articles which say the British are doing nothing for so-and-so and actually they're doing everything they can. Um, and, you know, but there are, uh, I mean, the case of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe is an interesting one because the, what that illustrates, I mean, clearly Boris Johnson made a massive, oh, massive fuck up. But even if you take that out of the equation, what we can do as Britain is quite limited. It's mm. really difficult, actually, to, to you know, to, to force another government to change what they've done, particularly a government like Iran that isn't too worried about, you know, bad reputation in the West. How, and it was an interesting point about um, not just Western hostages, but people who've been living in Iraq, British people who'd moved to Iraq. I mean, how many, I mean, do you have any idea roughly how many people there were? And were they, were they immediately in touch? Did you uh, have to establish communications with them? Yeah, well, there was. It was actually quite a small number. So, 
you know, back in the sort of 70s, uh, obviously, like a lot of the Gulf region, Iraq went through a massive boom with sort of oil wealth and so on. And you had quite a large British community. and it, But it sort of dwindled for all, all the obvious reasons, the yeah. Iran-Iraq war and so on. So there weren't that many. I mean, one phenomenon, though, that we did see which was very interesting. There were huge numbers of Iraqis who'd come to Britain as refugees from Saddam, understandably. And a a lot of them returned to Iraq after the invasion and are to this day now, uh, you know, prominent politicians and so on. I mean, the the British university system has basically educated the Iraqi political class. And that's a good thing? I guess so. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's a mixed bag. I mean, one thing I think sometimes we we say to ourselves, well, if you've been to a Western university, you'll have a respect for democracy. I mean, it it doesn't always Mm. seem to work out that way. No, it doesn't, Uh, including people from Britain. (laughs) We're seeing that on the right at the moment. I, I should say the far right, um, just to be clear. Um, so you, you, you spend time in Iraq, uh, which must have been incredible. L- later on, uh, you find yourself in Afghanistan uh, in 2010-11, so almost 10 years really after the flashpoint of 9-11 and the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, I suppose it, it was it, because more time had passed by the time you got to Afghanistan. Um what was your view of the country then and, and, and of Britain's involvement? And, and overall, would you say, uh, looking at Afghanistan in 2010-2011, had Britain had a, or the UK more specifically, had a, a positive impact on Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. Basically, 2010-11 was sort of the last big push to try to kind of stabilise Afghanistan. Yeah. So if you look at Britain, obviously, within the context of NATO, it was at the point where the number of foreign troops was at its highest. Uh, You had a big surge of of US forces. Uh, The British military were there in the highest numbers and lots of other countries, you know, countries that perhaps some people in this country don't take seriously as a military power. But, you know, Italy had a big force. We had a big Dutch force, you know, so it was a big international effort. And it was kind of 2010-11, that was the sort of make or break. If we can't do it now, it's never going to happen. And I think the truth is it didn't happen. And, Mm. you know, if we look at what's happening in Afghanistan now, you see the Taliban, they control a significant chunk of the country. And in fact, only today, you know, there's there's a discussion over whether or not the peace talks will will take place, which are between the the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. Um, I think... So that's that's the big picture. In terms of what Britain was doing, we were in Helmand province, which has always been a very difficult part of Afghanistan. You know, if you talk to the Russians, they were never in control of Helmand. No one was ever in control of Helmand. Um, And, you know, I'm sure there are things that we've done which have lasted. I think particularly in education is an area where you know, the the coalition did have an impact in terms of reopening and and constructing new schools and schools for girls, which is obviously important. Um, But ultimately, you know, most of Helmand province is now under the control of the Taliban. And a lot of the big things that the British government made a big song and dance about, like the Kajaki Dam, which I'm sure you'll remember, that thing has never done anything. You know, I mean, there was this this big story of a, of the turbine being moved up by the army, a very heroic operation by the British army, but the turbine was never installed, you know. So I think a lot of the, the very kind of um, big kind of military operations that the British public were aware of ultimately haven't had much of an effect. It will baffle some people that with all the resources of Britain, America, and indeed Italy and others, you couldn't beat the Taliban. Yeah, 
it's it's um I mean, it, not, that's not to underestimate the Taliban. No, no, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you sort of think America on its own should be able to defeat anyone anywhere. But ultimately, this so-called asymmetric warfare, you know, you're not in a battle. That's the problem. Um, you know, we are Western militaries. Of course, they've been retraining in the so-called counterinsurgency and all the rest of it. But ultimately, this is a social struggle. The British mm. army can't change the society in Helmand or anywhere else, however well trained and sort of sensitive they are. Not without being, I suppose, hugely autocratic, which right. is something you're keen to avoid. I well, imagine. that's right. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the, the British had this reputation, which, you know, possibly has been slightly damaged for for being sort of effective in a counterinsurgency. And people talked about Kenya and Malaya in this sort of imperial kind of context. But actually, if you look at what the military did, it's what we would describe today as human rights abuses. And in fact, you know, there's been legal cases brought by Kenyans to this day, you know, on, on, on some of those operations. So ultimately, it's hard to see how kind of Western militaries operating under Western standards of the rule of law, which is what they should do. I'm, I'm yeah. not arguing they should do something different. But it's hard to see how they can defeat insurgencies in environments like Afghanistan. What was your relationship with the military like in places like Iraq and Afghanistan? I mean, it was very good. I think um, in general, you know, the military very understandably are are a little bit suspicious of civilians sort of turning up in war zones because we get in the way, you know, we're... <laughs> We're um, we're just another sort of problem that they have to deal with, but I think if you if you show one that you respect what they're doing and you know d don't try and lecture the military on their job, and I've seen lots of diplomats do that, and it doesn't usually end well. Um, but but obviously you know we bring skills that they don't have, and they they bring skills that we don't have, and if you if you're grown up about it, you can work together. It's remarkable that you've you've worked in in these such important places at such important times. Um, uh, you also spent some time in Zimbabwe in two thousand to two thousand and one, which, I mean, at that point Zimbabwe was still a powder keg. You had Mugabe's veterans, uh, you know, slaughtering people on their farms, and it got a huge amount of international attention towards the late nineties, and then has slipped down at the priorities um, again. It must have been quite a scary place to go to. Yes, it, it, it was. I mean, I was at that point, it was my first overseas assignment. I was I was very young. I mean, I think I was 24 when I went there. Um, and to be honest, you know, not experienced at all. And and this was, as, as you said, the, the very beginning of this whole kind of war veteran thing with Mugabe. It was the first time that Mugabe felt threatened politically. Mm. It was the first time there was a political organization, the MDC, that was going to win an election. And so he had to do something. And what he did, obviously, was he built up this kind of interethnic tension and started occupying farms owned by white Zimbabweans. Um, and, it, you know, I mean... It was a weird situation because most of the time in Harare, you felt entirely comfortable. You know, there was there were little demos outside the British High Commission, but nothing, nothing particularly troubling. But then I, I do remember, you know, going to visit uh, areas where 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 these land invasions were happening, and there was a lot of tension in the air. And of course, Britain had allowed itself to become the sort of target of Mugabe's, uh, you know, Mugabe's focus. Uh, partly because of obviously our own history there, but I think partly because Tony Blair and Peter Hayne, I mean, both politicians I respect, but uh, they took a very sort of aggressive stance, which I think ultimately it's hard to argue that that worked in, in the long run. So in terms of what advice you would give politicians, I mean, obviously it's always dependent on the context of the country and the time. Um, 
Would you, it, it, you know, would you describe yourself as a hawk or a dove? Well, I, I think I've, I'm, I've a sort of a hawk that's grown into a dove, um, <laughs> and you know, partly that's just based on experience. I think, I mean, taking the Afghanistan example again, you know, what what the experience of Afghanistan appears to show us that if you put pretty much limitless resources of of a massive group of Western countries and NATO, you know, the world's most powerful military alliance, it's not actually necessarily possible to stabilize a country which is set in a completely different political and, and economic context. And, you know, you might be able to stabilize Bosnia, which is a European country and, you know, has m- many more connections with, with Europe. Uh, then, but, but somewhere like Afghanistan, it just can't be done. And I think ultimately, uh, Britain in particular has this sort of uh, slight addiction to intervention. I mean, you know, we went through the whole experience of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and you would have thought we learned a lesson, but then we piled into Libya, and look look what the mm. situation in Libya is now. And I think we've got to be, uh, and, you know, when I say we, clearly this needs to be led by politicians. We've got to be a lot more honest with the public, because what happens, and it's very understandable, the public get upset. They see horrific things happening, and they say, why aren't you doing something? And politicians aren't good enough at saying, well, there isn't something we can do or the things that we can do in the long run will probably make things worse. And, mm. and when we start to be honest about that, I think we will have made some progress. So Syria is a place where we haven't been as active as we have been in Libya, certainly not as active uh, as I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And inaction has, has come at a cost there. So is it just that if we do get involved, they have to be kind of targeted, specialised missions like in Sierra Leone um, or that we just don't get involved at all? Or Well, I, I think, you know, Sierra Leone is a great example of something that worked. And, uh, you know, to some extent, Kosovo, a different type of situation. But you could argue that the, over the long run, you know, that's been a success. Uh, Syria, as as you quite rightly say, the cost of inaction has been horrific. But I think... I think what we have to do is to be much more honest. And this is also not just in public, but actually in private, in, you know, Security Council discussions inside government. We have to be much more honest about the limits of our capacity. Yes. And I've, I've seen this, I mean, in the in the run up to uh, the Libya mission, you know, I think inside government, I think David Cameron, he got sort of overexcited by the the capacity that Britain had. And of course, Britain has an amazing military, it has all kinds of other resources. But ultimately, uh, I'm not sure that we were being honest with ourselves about what we could do. And Syria is another case where we sort of we're half in half out, you know, we, we didn't intervene in in a sort of, you know, uh, full frontal way. But we've sort of supported these so-called moderate groups, but only to a level that means that they don't get extinguished, but they can't win. And that ultimately is a cruelty that prolongs the conflict. Britain gets involved in, in, in other ways as well. Uh, you, you, uh, you served in Yemen for two years, 2003 to 2005. Um, Yemen, of course, very much in the news at the moment because of the recent Saudi bombing of, of Yemen and, and the UK's apparent complicity in selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Um, th- there, was a, there was a quote recently, the Saudis can't keep the typhoon in the air without the British. So Saudi Arabia is, is something that is... Um, Seems inconsistent, really, with with the re- with other parts of British foreign policy. When you were in Yemen, was that was that an issue for you? Well, it, it, it's interesting. When when I was in Yemen, uh, I mean, relatively, it was a fairly peaceful period for Yemen, and certainly there wasn't this 
foreign intervention. Um, but clearly, you know, have it, having lived there for a couple of years, and it, it's a wonderful country, a country I have a very kind of strong personal bond with. Uh, so I've followed, you know, the recent events uh, very closely. And, you know, I think ultimately... Uh, Britain's stance on on supplying weapons to Saudis is not supportable. I think it's a disgrace. And I'm not one of these people that is simplistic and says that we should have no relationship with Saudi Arabia. That's not what it is. But ultimately, what we have is a massively inconsistent position. You hear government ministers in Britain saying there's no military solution to what's happening in Yemen, but we're supplying military uh, tools to one side of the war. So, you know, we're... It's a completely contradictory stance, and the impact on civilians in Yemen is horrific. Did you uh, and do you detect um, in the diplomatic or in the political class a desire to end the arms trade altogether? But certainly for Britain's relation role in the arms trade to to, to change. To be honest, I, I don't see that. I mean, I think you know one of the challenges. This is a big sort of big picture economic question but you know Britain has a relatively small manufacturing sector you know we're not that good at exporting manufactured things Mm. with the exception of weapons which we kind of lead the world in oh god you know and uh, perhaps if we were sort of better at making all the sort of widgets that Germany's good at making we wouldn't be so reliant on the arms trade now obviously uh, if, if, for example, Jeremy Corbyn was prime minister, I think we'd be looking at a, a very different situation. And um, so I, it, it's to be very honest with you, I, I don't know whether our defence sector has, you know, has a slightly difficult future ahead of it, it, assuming that, you know, a Labour government is certainly a possibility. You would hope as well, though, wouldn't you? That, that And I know there are pressures within the Conservative Party about, about arms to, to Saudi Arabia and, and just a, a general discomfort that if Britain claims to be a, a leading light on the global stage and, and to embody a certain amount of values, this is a, it's such a huge contradiction and, it, and is morally difficult. I, I agree with you. And I think, I mean, to be fair, you know, we do have a export licensing regime, which is supposed to sort of rule out, you know, supply of arms to, to to scenarios where they're going to be used inappropriately. But it's pretty clear that what's happened in Yemen, I think, shows the weakness of that regime. But I think ultimately, um, you know, it's imagine if you're a, a Labour MP with with, uh, you know, a factory from BAE systems in your constituency, you know, that's where it gets difficult. Yeah. Um, just a few years after you left, there was a, the, the awful attack on the um, US embassy in, in Yemen where 18 people were killed. I, would, I just remember it so clearly, just the fear of, you know, you always think embassies are going to be the safest place. Mm. I don't know if that's something that you <laughs> felt when you worked there, although given the car bomb attack in Iraq, maybe not. But you always just think, well, they'll be fine. You know, they'll have their protection. When, when, pla- when places like that that are meant to be highly secure are shown not to be, that must send ripples uh, around the diplomatic world. Yeah, it does. And, and, and obviously, um, you know, the Americans suffered that attack. And then, of course, there was the attack in Benghazi as well. And, and the Americans, you know, they yield to no one in the sort of quality of their security arrangements. But ultimately, you know, diplomats are at, at risk. I mean, I remember our embassy in Yemen, uh, the one that I worked in has since closed and it's moved to a much more secure environment, which that one has also closed now. Um, and of course, you know, Britain suffered attacks in Istanbul, for example, where the consul general was was killed by a bomb. And, you know, uh, diplomatic premises do become targets. And that's yeah. that's sort of one of the things that goes with the job. Oh, man, you say it. Oh, you've got. <laughs> I just think it, 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 it sounds so chilling. 
Yeah. That it should... I mean, obviously it goes with the job because of where the, the geographically the job is. But st- to still be prepared to do the job in those circumstances takes a, must take a type of person. I don't think I'd have the guts to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the... Obviously, the like all these things, you're probably more likely to be run over on on you know Labrook Grove than you are to 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 be blown up in an embassy. But clearly, it's it's not the way you you want to go. And and um, you know, I think that in in a weird way that the, the kind of period since nine eleven, if I think of the foreign office that I joined in ninety eight, and and the one that now exists, you know, it, it's so different. And I remember that, you know, that one of my closest friends was in Istanbul and was very lucky to survive that bombing. And those are weird things that, that you don't expect. If someone had said five years earlier, this is you'll be going through this, I would have said, you know, this that, that's crazy. You seem to have worked in two types of places, either Middle East places, sources of high tension, um, and former um, imperial uh, empire places. Uh, uh, you you uh, went from Afghanistan to being the High Commissioner of Trinidad and Tobago. So two different political uh, situations there. And, and Britain's empirical, Britain's imperial past is something that is probably under the spotlight more now as a result of Brexit and people starting to analyse our role in history, how we see ourselves in the world, how the rest of the world sees us, what are we responsible for, what should we feel guilty for, are there any things that we should be proud of? So to start on a more positive note, having worked in places like Zimbabwe and Trinidad and Tobago, is there a legacy of the empire that is at all positive? I think there is, and I think it it would be kind of foolish to say there isn't. So, for example, you know, the legal systems, uh, I mean, particularly if you look at Caribbean countries, all very small countries, uh, which um, it would be quite hard to sort of create out of nowhere a kind of fully functioning, internationally recognised legal system. But the Caribbean countries have that, and they have it, you know, in, in part thanks to the, the legacy of empire. And, you know, something that's not very well known is that the final court of appeal for most Caribbean countries is here in London. And that's something that Britain sort of does as a kind of, you know, as, a, as I suppose a, a legacy of our, our responsibility to the, those countries. So there are those things, uh, and clearly, you know, being in a country where English is the first language, it kind of gives you an advantage in the world. Um, but, of course, there's a, there's a lot of very, very difficult and negative legacies as well. And what, what are the most difficult ones, do you think? Well, I think it varies from place to place. But I think, uh, I mean, to take the, the Caribbean, obviously, a region that I, I got to know reasonably well, um, you know, that the issue of slavery is is a terrible thing that when you start to think about it, particularly if your own heritage is kind of white European mm. as, as mine is, it, you, you, it, you start to feel a bit disgusted in yourself. Yes. And obviously, someone can say, well, that's more than 100 years ago. You know, it's nothing to do with me. Well, OK, but, uh, you know, as has been demonstrated, there are wealthy people in Britain whose wealth comes entirely from the fact that their great-great-grandfather was paid off when slavery was abolished, yes. compensated, you know, which, which in itself seems an extraordinary thing. Um, and if you look at some of the social problems that exist, you know, the, the Caribbean to the outside, you know, people go there on their honeymoons. It's a beautiful place with lovely beaches and all that. But these are countries that face some very difficult social problems, crime and so on. I mean, you know, it's quite well known that Jamaica faced those problems, but a lot of the islands do face these issues. And some of that is that legacy. And, uh, you know, there's been this this sort of growing debate about whether there should be compensation for slavery. Now, I think 
the problem with that is it's it's so hard to understand how you could make that work how it would you know how how it would get to the right people but it's something that when i first went to live in the caribbean if i'm honest i thought that that was a slightly wacky far out idea and by the time i left i was quite sympathetic to it yeah and you would you would give the money to the ancestors of well that's the problem who who do you give the money to do you, do you maybe you maybe you have to give a sort of trust fund to the to the governments of the countries and you say this is basically to help your country build and and be stronger yeah. because we're not going to find individuals and of course part of the issue is that one of the sort of uh, very negative aspects of slavery is the way in which slave owners uh, you know treated women as obviously as their property and they would often have children yes. with those women so people's ancestry is very mixed up now you could say that's a good thing because you have these very diverse communities but it means that people are both descendants of slave owners and descendants of slaves and and it creates a lot of complexity in the society i suppose you could do a you could you could do it well there are numerous ways you could do it you could give as you say a trust fund to the government to the society for the government to manage you could also just... I mean, people talk about a universal basic income here where everyone just gets a certain amount of money regardless. Maybe we just give everyone in these places a, a kind of... A, a, an across-the-board lump sum. But does then that... I mean, is that better than doing nothing? Or is that... Does that look hugely cheap and reductive? It's Yeah, it's very difficult because, you know, there's an argument which says that nothing we do now will 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 change yes. that you know that what happened the, the 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 transatlantic slave trade and obviously that's true but i think the problem with that argument is that it allows you to do nothing yes yes um i mean actually what you just suggested as a kind of uh, a sort of universal payment maybe maybe that is the right thing i think you know one of the challenges is that the numbers involved so far in terms of the claims that have been made are are sums of money that just I don't think any British government would be able to support doing it. And I think it would create, it would actually probably, it would, for example, empower kind of far-right voices. Because yeah. you can imagine all the people who who would have an argument against this. So when I say I'm sympathetic to the idea, I, I'm afraid I don't think I have a, a worked-out plan a policy for how solution. To, to, to deal with it. <laughs> but it is a, it's a fascinating thing to think about. And um, it... it well, it makes me think about a number of things. I mean, firstly, obviously, how despicable the slave trade is. Secondly, about chickens coming home to roost and, and you know unleashing forces that then swirl for decades, centuries. And if you trace all these things back, you know we're hugely culpable for a lot of it. Um, also, the, the, the belief that actually that shouldn't stop us doing things now. Yeah. And how can Britain be positive in the world? Um, I mean, do you think? I know this is a big question for anyone, that overall the UK is a responsible global actor. I, I certainly think that in, you know, in the last, let's say the last sort of 40 years, uh, yeah, Britain, Britain has tried to be on the sort of on the right side of, of, of you know, the, the big kind of global questions. And, and, you know, moving away from, you know, things like Iraq, which are so controversial. But I mean, don't forget that on, for example, things like climate change, we've we've absolutely been in the right place. Uh, you know, some of these other really big kind of major things, the International Criminal Court, the Americans put quite a lot of pressure at, in the early days on the Brits not to be involved with it. But we, we did, we signed up to it. So there, I think, you know, we can take credit for those things. I do fear that uh, the Brexit situation 
it means that you kind of end up with a shorter list of obvious friends, which <laughs> which we, you end yeah. up sort of, you know, we, we, we saw those ghastly pictures of Theresa May holding hands with Trump looking very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, you know, what's happening with Saudi Arabia? I think, uh, you know, Brexit does affect this a lot. And, and you know, I'm not going to argue that Brexit will turn us into a sort of pariah state. Of course not. But it, it does make it harder for us to have these productive alliances. You uh, you also worked on the prevent strategy, which is fascinating. Part of contest, which is the UK's counterterrorism strategy, which has four strands: prevent, pursue, protect, and prepare. Um, I'd, prevent is the one that gets all the attention. Um, I read an interview with you where you, you're talking about the, the protect strand and talking about specifically the attack on Borough Market. Um, we say the annoying traffic management that means many small roads are now dead ends and the bollards outside public buildings all form part of the protect strand. Had the borough market attacks occurred 10 years ago, the eight minute response time would have been unimaginable. More would have been killed. So, I mean, that's a fascinating thing to think about because we all notice those those bollards. So that's obviously to stop cars running into the home office and other public buildings. But the thing about small roads being dead ends. Yeah, so... Part of that is is to make it harder uh, for effectively to, to make it easier for the police to kind of, you know, in pursuit of someone to kind of box them in um, and uh, it effectively to have sort of strategies that, that makes it harder for a so-called marauding attack, which is the type of borough market thing where you've got a group of people moving through an area, not focused on one place. Uh, to make it sort of easier to 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 kind of uh, you know box them in, I mean I think it this thing about pro- the protect strategy is quite interesting because it's the realization. I mean obviously the borough market attack was was terrible. People died and and lots of members of the public were incredibly brave in confronting these these killers. But actually the fact that the police were able to respond in that time frame is 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 in incredibly impressive and and should make all of us feel a bit safer oh yes I, I think that was it was remarkable how quickly from the start of the attack to the end of it and, and having it all sorted in, in that regard um really was very impressive uh, and these are things that i think obviously we don't read about a great deal probably with good reason because you don't want to put the information out there but just thinking about those small sensible ways in which terrorism can be frustrated just the ingenuity of of our public services is is massively reassuring and there's something really fascinating about it now you worked on prevent um which was the the strand to stop people becoming terrorists or supporting terrorism um and you made a great... I mean, there are a number of interviews you've given that, that are really fascinating. Firstly, the, the point um, that Britain shouldn't just be concentrating on radical Islam and should also be focusing on, on far-right extremists. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, I mean, the, the, there's a point there. Obviously, there's this thing about balance. And, and what we've seen, I think, you know, the last couple of years have, have actually changed the whole perception of it. And, and you know, governments can can be a bit slow to catch up. But now the, there's really no debate that, you know, these are both very, very real threats and we can't just focus on one. But I think that there's another point here, which is actually governments trying to get into debating religion. I mean, it's a disaster zone. Yes. And particularly a government in a country which is largely has a Christian history, you know, Western European country, trying to get into a debate about the religion of Islam it's disastrous. And, and yet, you know, that did happen at, at some points and, and it didn't work. So with far-right terrorists, I mean, overall, 
is it still fair to say that, that radical Isl- Islamists present a, a greater threat to our national security? Um, I don't know. I would have said that was the case if you'd asked me a year ago. Right now, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. And, and I'm, I'm not claiming to be on the inside of the, you know, the latest assessments. But I think, um, I mean, I think that what's happened is the authorities have got very good at confronting the ways in which at the beginning, radical Islamists were operating. So obviously, we had the 7-7 bombings, suicide bombings on the tube. Uh, and that type of attack is devastating. And it, and it remains to this day, the largest terrorist attack in British history, including anything that happened with the IRA. Um, now, fast forward to what happened at the Manchester Arena. Obviously, it was a similar type of attack, very devastating, I think more than 20 people killed. So Suicide bombers, obviously, are in an incredibly difficult, very, very, uh, you know, desperately uh, dangerous thing to have to deal with. However, um, for a variety of reasons, I think the authorities have got better at dealing with that, which is why you saw the terrorists move to this thing of kind of ramming people with vehicles and using knives, because obviously you're not going to capture someone buying a knife or hiring a van. You know, that's something that's much harder to to sort of bear down on. But coming to the, you know, the far right terrorism, I mean, I think we can probably rule out the kind of suicide bombing thing. Um, But you see that the far right, they're learning from the Islamists. So this technique of ramming people with vehicles, of using low tech, uh, you know, knives or whatever, that's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, both sides are kind of imitating and learning from each other. And are there other characteristics that they share other than tactics? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, and this is, again, why I think emphasizing religion is a bit pointless, because ultimately, if you look at what what causes usually a young man, it, it, it tends to be the classic profile, to turn to kind of radical militancy, whether it's in the name of Islam or in the name of, you know, white nationalism, whatever, very, very similar factors. You, you It's somebody who, for whatever reason, they feel immense frustration with their life. They feel that society doesn't respect them. They feel that they have no stake in society. And they feel that the community they identify with is in some way under threat. And if you look at that, it, it's it's a, not that dissimilar to somebody joining a gang where yes. people who've perhaps grown up in difficult homes where they haven't had a father figure in some cases, you know, and they join an entity where some, suddenly they're taken seriously for the first time. So, so there are a lot of these similarities between gangs, between ISIS, between the sort of far-right white nationalism. And ultimately, uh, what that means is that actually some of the solutions are very similar as well. You made a great point in, a, in an interview with uh, with Prospect magazine, which really is, is kind of a different way of saying what you said. To be successful, Prevent would do far better to stop talking about Islam altogether and start focusing on the personal issues that lead individuals to become attracted to violent groups, the power of social networks, the impact of charismatic individuals and young people lacking self-esteem and a sense of belonging in wider society, um, which I completely agree with. But... How would you design a, a strategy to stop that? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's obviously the, the hard bit. I mean, I think, I think there is an issue. I think this goes to wider questions. You know, we know that Britain is a society that uh, in which, you know, the circumstances of your birth have a very strong influence on your life chances. Yes. Uh, I think we know that there are massive Uh, differences in the quality of education. I mean, I think there's been progress in that area, but I I think that's still the case. Uh, You know, there are 
um, sort of ghettoized communities. So there are a lot of these things. And Britain is not unique. You know, I, I there are other countries in Northern Europe which face similar challenges. So, so I'm, I'm not talking about this as a kind of as a uniquely British problem. But basically, I think if we had a society in which people felt that opportunity was less about, you know, what your parents did, uh, I think that yeah. would make a difference. In terms of your uh, role in in, um, in in prevent, what what was your day to day work like? What did it involve? Well, the, the specific uh, sort of task I had was actually looking at the international aspects, which obviously related to the kind of foreign office background. So what we recognised was that a lot of the kind of uh, influences and threats within the kind of world of of terrorism and particularly the kind of radical Islamist terrorism emanated in some respects from overseas. So you've got large communities in this country who might be Muslims of first and second generation of Pakistani heritage, Bangladeshi heritage, Somali heritage, just for example. Uh, So trying to understand how the situation in those countries, Pakistan, Somalia, Bangladesh, for example, how that affected security in this country um, that was sort of, and then to try and take action to, to you know, change that positively. That was basically the the objective. I mean, it, it's easy to describe. It's quite hard to do. Yeah. Um, and was it in terms of all the roles you've had? I mean, that was that the most satisfying, or is that me just thinking that's what I would rather do out of all of those? Well, it was for me. It was a very, uh, it was a big change because it was the first time I was doing something that was unlike some of the stuff we touched on earlier, was very much on the national domestic political agenda. So it was the first time I'd really, you know, I've always been interested in politics, but if you're a civil servant, you're you're in policy, not politics. But actually, this job, we were dragged into politics. And to be honest, that was a bit of an awakening for me because I, I, I've personally always been interested in politics, but not, not as an operator. And then yet, whether you wanted to be or not, you ended up being an operator in this space. And, you know, one of the factors, this was at the tail end of the sort of Labour government, so the sort of Blair-Brown switchover, you know, there was a big aspect to all of this, which was the fact that uh, a lot of the areas affected by radicalisation and by some of these challenges were Labour constituencies, you know, places like Blackburn, places like Bradford, places, Mm. uh, you know, so... So this was a, it was a very sensitive and complicated issue. And I think also, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the kind of advice and uh, policy input that the ministers were getting were coming from special advisors, many of whom came from a sort of community leader perspective. Maybe there'd been local councillors and that kind of thing. Yeah. And and again, you know, there, there were a lot of agendas there, which were which to me as a probably a pretty naive person when it came to party politics. It was, it was quite quite a minefield. Um, and in terms of your view of politics and politicians as a result of that experience, and a result of all your yeah. diplomatic experience, um, what is the view of diplomats of politicians in general? Are there cliches? Um, I mean, I think in, in general, uh, you know, I, I've always found them to be, you know, uh, very hard working they've got pretty thankless jobs particularly if you're a junior minister i mean mm. you know being foreign secretary is a glitzy job and and that's you know also a very important job but if you're a junior foreign office minister it's an incredibly punishing job you're on a plane all the time you've still got a constituency 
I mean, it's like that that wonderful film in the loop. You know, the yes. poor guy. He's got the constituent with a garden wall falling down. But you know, I mean, that's so realistic. Yeah. And he's trying to grapple with you know Gaza or something. Um, and so you know, I had a lot of respect. Having said that, you know, there is a there is a way in which politicians are. You know, they're always looking for the photo op. I do remember when we were in Helmand, we had a visit. Obviously, I won't name the politicians, but. We, we'd put together a quite detailed program of briefing and of all the sort of stuff that was going on and what we were doing. And it came clear very quickly that, that we'd messed it all up because what they wanted was to have photos of them with our boys, you know, with the troops. And, and they, were comp- they were sort of really angry that we'd wasted all their time with, with you know, PowerPoint on what was happening. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, 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 but ultimately, you know, that's, that's also important. You know, it's important that, that politicians can show their constituencies what they're doing. So... I just wondered if there was a kind of Sir Humphrey view of politicians, that they're transient beings and that you guys are really in charge. Well, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, one of the things with foreign policy is that foreign policy doesn't really change very much. You know, mm. I mean, if you think about, you know, take a classic example, the invasion of Iraq. I'm pretty sure if we'd had a conservative government, they would have been even more uh, gung-ho about, oh, well, you know. Ian Duncan Smith was, was begging for the dossier. Well, there you go. So so I think a lot of foreign policies aren't really affected by party politics. And so that does slightly build this sort of view in the sort of Sir Humphrey mentality. Well, you know, the ship of state sails on and these people come and go. Yeah. You, know. you had your own uh, unique experience uh, dealing with uh, the British civil servant, uh, civil service. Um, when your son was denied citizenship because he was born abroad. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to think that the son of a UK diplomat doesn't count as being British is incredible. Yeah, it is. And obviously, you know, it was an error. And and so ultimately, you could just chalk it up as, well, you know, the, the system didn't work that day. But it, it was at the time of this, of, of the unfolding of, of the kind of, uh, you know, the Windrush situation. Now, obviously, that it didn't come out into the media until a couple of years later what had happened to these people and I do think there is something uh, about the way the home office works or perhaps we could say doesn't work and you know if you start talking to people about problems they've had with the home office and after the situation with my son had, had, had sort of hit the headlines you know I got contacted by other people I mean there was a case a guy who a British army officer you know, he'd actually literally been, you know, given a medal for his bravery in, in, uh, in I think, Iraq, uh, who had repeatedly uh, been kind of hassled by the Home Office. His, his wife was not British and, and the status of his children. Uh, and th- there's clearly something wrong there. Mm. And I think it does relate to uh, an overall kind of hostile environment culture and ultimately, you know, the, the impact on ordinary people. Now, in my case, as I said at the time, it wasn't that hard for me to resolve the situation, not least because I was very connected. I knew how the system worked. But, you know, we, the, this Windrush thing, you know, people who are British were thrown into prison and then deported. I mean, it, it, it's kind of unimaginable that that was happening in our country to our people. In, in this year? It's yeah. horrific. Yeah. Um, you're you're kind of out of it now in the official capacity, um, but you're still very young. I mean, do you do you have any desire to to, to you know go back in? Um, I, I I don't feel a desire at the moment. I mean, I think uh, I I had a very very interesting and varied career, and obviously we've had a chance to touch on some of that. And I was I was lucky that I was a high commissioner, which is you know like an ambassador, relatively young. 
Uh, well, in fact, I was the youngest one, I think. Wow. Um, so, so in that sense, it was, you know, I sort of managed to pack it all in quite quickly. Um, and, and it's an amazing life. But, you know, there are things about it that are less amazing, like if you have a spouse who has a career, their career is kind of on hold. And do you want your kids to sort of always be changing schools and not feel like it? So kind of what are quite sort of boring everyday questions, but ones that matter. And and those are the sorts of things that, that made me th- think of doing something different. Is it an easy life to get complacent in? Uh, can you see people getting a nice high commissioner job in a sunny country and just thinking, well, this will do me now? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that's... You know, I, obviously, I, I've got lots of colleagues who I respect immensely. But I think, you know, there is there is this sort of way in which the system kind of moves you around the world. And, and, and if you sort of keep your head down, you can, you can uh, sort of move from one place to another. And yeah, it, it is easy to get complacent. But I think the, there's another thing, which is even with these more kind of high-risk jobs, some people sort of get slightly addicted to that life. And, and it's sort of like their real life is on hold forever because they live this exciting life in, in a war zone somewhere. Yes. And and actually, these people often sort of have quite sort of chaotic personal lives and they don't really have good relationships and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm not going to judge people's choices, but I think in many cases, it, these kind of international jobs are a way for people to kind of avoid re- the real world in some respects. Wow. Well, I wasn't expecting to hear that. Um, Arthur, it has flown by... Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Cheers. Well, there you go. Arthur Snell, what a fantastic guest. And just, the, I mean, you can't really quite imagine what his life was like during that period in his life, working in these places and serving in these places, the things he would have seen, um, the challenges, the heartbreak, the successes and how keenly they'd have been felt. Um, it really was a, a, a glimpse into a completely different world for most of us. So I can't thank Arthur enough. And what a great thing that social media has brought us together. So there is positive stuff on Twitter after all, uh, and you can follow him on there. Uh, once again, uh, the live dates for the tour um, are as follows. 22nd of April, uh, this coming bank holiday Monday, uh, I'm doing the London Underbelly on the South Bank. Uh, and then on the 9th of May, Salford. The 10th of May, Aberystwyth. The 12th of May, Edinburgh. 13th of May, Glasgow. 14th of May, Newcastle. 18th of May, Chorley, 24th of May, Camberley, and the 25th of May at London uh, Bloomsbury Theatre. So um, if you can uh, buy tickets, well, if you can buy tickets, buy tickets for those if you want to come and see me. Uh, If you can, get your friends to listen to the podcast, hit subscribe, please leave an iTunes review. It helps so many other people find it. It makes such a big difference um, to, uh, to, to, to allowing other people to find the podcast. And just in general, thank you so much for downloading this. Uh, and this episode of The Political Party was produced by Joe O'Kell.